This is the beginning of a recording of reading Emily Carr's autobiography. It's called Growing Pains, the autobiography of Emily Carr, with an introduction by Robin Lawrence. There's a foreword by Ira Dilworth. I'll be reading both of those tonight. Introduction The Making of an Artist by Robin Lawrence Over the past few decades, Emily Carr's reputation has soared so high that it, can now, that it now can be argued she is Canada's best-known artist, historic or contemporary. Her impassioned paintings of the west coast of Canada her depictions of the monumental sculpture of British Columbia's indigenous peoples and of the towering trees and dense undergrowth of the region's rainforests executed during the early decades of the 20th century have superseded even the Group of Seven's iconic claim to Canadian wilderness and to national identity. Yet it is not simply Carr's images that speak to us, but also the story behind them. The romantic striving to manifest her vision through decades of adversity informs her work and amplifies our interest. We are moved by her struggle to survive economically and creatively and to discover a way of expressing herself that accords with her sense of who she is and what her subject must be. We see not only aesthetic and thematic accomplishment in her work, but also the difficult journey towards overcoming the gender and social biases of her time and place. We see the final realization of the artist she always knew herself to be. We also see an artist to whom we can attach our own relationship to place, an artist whose legend haunts the West Coast landscape and shapes our understanding of it, an artist who confounds our expect expectations too. When I was a graduate student of art history, I lived in the James Bay District of Victoria, across the street from the first house that Emily Carr occupied. The little blue cottage that belonged to her sister, Alice, was the final place to which the artist laid claim before checking herself into a nursing home to die. When I was a student, I was moved by the story of Emily Carr's last days and weeks. She, has, she was said to have walked across the street to telephone for an ambulance and by all the other stories told about her in the neighborhood. Her neighborhood, the one in which she was born and raised and lived the majority of her 73 years. When I was that person, young and green and casting around for the thesis topic, I looked at the indigenous art of the Northwest Coast, looked at Emily Carr's mature paintings, 
and knowing a little about both, but not a lot about either, I was certain the painting style had been influenced directly by the carvings they depicted. I could see so many formal similarities, the sinuous lines and organic forms, the volumetric handling of space, the smooth and graceful transitions from plane to plane. And then there was her own claim made in the pages of this book, quote, Indian art broadened my seeing, end quote. Only later did I come to understand that there were, there was more Paul Cezanne than Charles Edenshaw in her treatments of carved poles and primordial forests. There was more European modernism percolated through the group of seven than revelation directly acquired from the hands of classic Haida or Kwakwawa's artists. Only later did I learn that Carr needed the direction of her white male teachers and colleagues to find a way through First Nations art, and then passed it to her own understanding of the landscape. The paradox is unsettling. So much of Carr's struggle seemed to be in throwing off the, di- the dictates of the conservative and patriarchal society into which she was born. So much of her mature accomplishment involved the advice and encouragement of men. Born in Victoria, British Columbia in 1871, Carr had to leave what was then a cultural blackwater, sorry, (laughs) Carr had to leave what was then a cultural backwater to study art with the seriousness her calling demanded. Over the course of 21 years, between the ages of 18 and 39, she took herself to San Francisco, to London, and to Paris in order to equip herself to be an artist. It was not until she was in her mid-50s, however, living again in conservative Victoria, poor, alienated at times, despairing, that she made the connections with the group of seven and with Lauren Harris, and with Lauren Harris particularly, that catapulted her into becoming the artist we now recognize as Emily Carr. The astonishing thing about her career is that the most definitive part of it, the part upon which her reputation is based, occurred when she was in her late 50s and early 60s. Hers was a long and uncomfortable apprenticeship. Hello, Maggie. What are you doing? You're joining me? You want to join us? Okay. During Carr's last decade, ill health forced her to give up painting for protracted periods of time, and she turned her creative energies to writing, completing autobiographical sketches that she had been developing for some years. Unlike her visual art, Her published writing generated immediate critical and popular acclaim. Carr's first book, Clay Wyck, or Clee Wick, which came out in 1941, was warmly reviewed. 
I have that one on reserve. I want to read that one as well. It was warmly reviewed, sold briskly, and won a Governor General's Award for nonfiction. It was followed by the Book of Small in 1942 and the House of All Sorts in 1944, also both well-received. Growing Pains, the the autobiography of Emily Carr was published in 1946, the year following her death. As with her other books, it reveals that she she was as accomplished a storyteller as she was a visual artist. Her determined sense of self and her forthright sentences, often powered by vehement and unusual verbs, carry her narrative through a series of scenes, anecdotes, and descriptions of people and places. And in parentheses it says, any reader who supposes that the backforming of verbs from nouns and adjectives is a phenomenon of the contemporary age will be surprised by Carr, who presses such words as dusk, Christmas, monument, pink, and even higgledy higgly-piggly into predicate surface. Service, sorry. Higgly, that's like Miss Pig-a-Wiggle. Higgledy-piggledy into predicate service. That's the end of the parentheses. Her unexpected use of language has has in it some of the faux-naive qualities of Fauvist painting that she learned in France and practiced in her middle years. With their broad, vigorous strokes and vivid emotional charged colors, painting in prose through a similar kind of expressive punch. There is also something of the strong, streamlined style of her mature painting here, the shedding of superfluity and the consolidating of form. Sorry, I lost my place. In Growing Pains, Carr tells us how her rules for writing accord with those for painting. Quote, Get to the point as directly as you can. Never use a big word if a little one will do. End quote. Together, the sketches in this book form a compelling, if not always factual, accurate record of Emily Carr's life in art. Names, dates, and explicit circumstances may be changed or omitted, altered perhaps by the underwater murk of memory or consciously shaped by a writer fully aware of the power of creative nonfiction. Long before the term was co- that term was coined, it actually has a, has a, um, a footnote there. Or a source number, and it's. I'm not going to look it up right now. I'll look it up in a minute. <laughs> all as all of Emily Carr's biogra- biographers have noted, emotional truth and dramatic act impact usually prevail over mere fact in her telling of her own story. That's why Growing Pains makes for such good reading. Although her middle-class Victorian childhood had dispirited middle, her dispirited middle age, her encounters with native people and culture, and her relationships with her many fr- 
many animals, from dogs, cats, and parrots to chipmunks, white rats, and a Javanese monkey have been described in her other books. Elements of each are alluded to here. Essentially, however, Growing Pains focuses on Emily Carr's emergence as a fierce individual and a modern artist. The two strands, of course, are tightly intertwined, though initially it appears that the fractious, willful, and rebellious individual who announces her almost congenital contrariness by being born in the middle of a snowstorm after a long and difficult labor might feed all her furious energy into her refusal to accommodate social and cultural conventions and thereby shortchange the claims of her creative being. Over the course of the book, Carr subtly, almost subliminally, builds our understanding of her commitment to her calling. Her first allusion to herself as an artist is offhand, almost incidental. At the age of eight, she tells us, she made a drawing of her father's dog, impressing her family enough to grant her art lessons and a special status in the household. I sat beside Carlo's kennel and stared at him for a long time, she writes. Then I took a charred stick from the grate, split open a large brown paper sack, and drew a dog on the sack. Here, Car modestly signals to us that she was a natural and resourceful artist. There's something determinedly primitive about her description, the primal impulse to draw being met with the crudest of improvised materials. Still, there is no early declaration of her calling, no outright account of prodigious talent. Instead, Carson simply, I wanted to draw a dog. And when, as an orphan teenager, she proposes to her guardian that she should travel to San Francisco to study art, it seems she was more anxious to escape her oldest sister's tyranny than to pursue a vocation. Only as the book progresses does Carr begin to reveal her dedication to her art through her pursuit of an education, her need to know more. She speaks especially of the challenge to find a way of painting what she has been told was unpaintable, the wild Canadian landscape, the vast, dense rainforest. No artist that I knew, no art school had taught art this size. I would have to go to London or to Paris to learn to paint. Unknowingly, I was storing unknowingly oh wait i'm sorry i skipped something so that was a quote from her when even that instruction fails to meet her challenge she writes unknowingly i was storing storing all unconscious my working ideas against the time when i should be ready to use this material end quote it took decades for Carr to acquire the skills the knowledge and the wisdom to harness her impassioned individualism to the needs of her painting to become the Emily Carr we now encounter in art galleries and museums. Still, her themes and sympathies, the deep woods and wild places, the native people and their material culture were established early, the former in childhood, the latter during a trip to Alaska in her 20s. 
In a memorable and, all, and much quoted account from Growing Pains of Her Teen Years, Carr tells about riding Johnny, an old circus pony, out of the noisy city and into the silent woods. When we came to some mossy little clearing where soft shade growing grass grew, Johnny stopped with a satisfied sigh. As the pony grazes, the young Emily drinks in the sacred beauty of Canada's still <clears throat> in sacred beauty of Canada's still woods. In her seventh decade, she thanks Johnny for finding the deep, lovely places that were the very foundation on which my work as a painter was to be built. In Growing Pains also, Carr describes the various art schools and classes she attended, her responses to her teachers and theirs to her. She assesses what she learned where, sorry, that doesn't sound right. She assesses what she learned where, admits to feelings of humiliation, discouragement, and occasional gratification. She devotes a chapter to her first encounter with the work of the group of seven and her special affinity with the art of Lauren Harris, the man to whom she dedicated this book. Another chapter is given over to Harris's teachings with liberal quotes from his letters to her, letters that were both a creative and a spiritual lifeline for her. Every letter he wrote stimulated me to search deeper, she writes. Lauren Harris made things worthwhile for their own sake. Carr's writings resound. Carr's writing resounds with descriptions of clashes with family members who attempted to constrain and control her, with acquaintances who struck her as pretentious, hypocritical, or suffocatingly pious. She hates sham and sophistication, honors simplicity, even rusticity, rusticity in her often unkind descriptions of people and her obvious preference for trees and animals over her fellow human beings, she gives evidence of considerable social alienation, even misanthropy. Her commitment to her own otherness, her sense of difference, has contributed in no small measure to the enduring legends of her eccentricity even now, more than half a century after her death, popular culture references to her art are accompanied by allusions. I want to say that because the last time I said allusions, I don't think it sounded like it was allusions. It sounded like it was illusions. So it's allusions, A-L-L, allusions to hear. Sorry to ponder that so longly, so, so much. Okay, let me start that sentence over. Even now, more than half a century after her death, popular culture references to her art are accompanied by allusions to her odd appearance, her her curmudgeonliness, <laughs> her menagerie of animals, her unconventional lifestyle. The chairs that would that could be raised to the ceiling by ropes and pulleys to make her room in her studio and not accident and not incidentally to discourage unwanted visitors 
That was one of the stories that circulated when I lived in Emily Carr's neighborhood. Her trundling pet monkey, her trundling a pet monkey around in an old baby carriage that did double duty as a grocery cart. That was another. In Growing Pains, Carr repeatedly dismisses her prim, proper, and pious old, older sisters for failing to understand her art as she does her community, and yet as, she, as her delighted description of her 70, 70th birthday celebration reveals, she longed for their approval. Most of all, she says, I would rather have got have the goodwill and kind wishes of my hometown the people i have lived among all my life than the praise of the whole world <laughs> that is so true Let's see how far i've gotten here it's 20 minutes and i have a little bit left of this and a, a little bit of a forward well i'm just gonna go for it but again, Carr's social difference is a function of the same waywardness that drove her to become a modernist, to work in a style unknown in her city and region. It was also the impulse that provo provoked her to deify gender bias. From the opening chapter of this book, Carr establishes, establishes her narrative and psychological templates, delineates the forms and conditions of her long war against propriety and patriarchy. The four-year-old Emily will not lie passively across the lap of the Presbyterian minister and receive his baptismal blessing. Oh no, instead she kicks and thrashes and runs to her mother. The signs of her rebellion and further developed in her attempts to detach herself from the control of her strict religious and authoritarian father. In one of the most touching and symbolically charged scenes in the book, Carr expresses her yearning for the maternal, for a sympathetic understanding of the defiant terms of her own being, and for a generous embrace of nature. After an attempt to resist her father's dominion over her, quote, he thinks he's as important as God, she exclaims, end quote. The young Emily enjoys the rare treat of a picnic in Beacon Hill Park with her mother. Carr's symbolism is overt when she describes her mother as the keeper of the key that unlocks the gate through which the two will pass from her father's realm. House, garden, barnyard, pasture, demarca demarcating hedges and fences into the primordial abundance of the forest. Quote, I stepped with the mother, I stepped with mother beyond the confines of our very fenced childhood. Beacon Hill Park was just as it had always been from the beginning of time, not cleared, not trimmed. End quote. The afternoon is spent in peace and conquered the child Emily making daisy chains with her while her mother sews. In Carr's metaphorical view, the paternal sorry, I have to get this over here. The paternal force is the colonizer, the civilizer, the harsh tamer of the wild world and of her wild ways. The maternal, loving, patient, non-judgmental. 
is clearly conflated with nature. It is nature's nurturance, her sustenance, to which Carr repeatedly returned in her art. That's, that's similar to what I find in my work. I have to constantly go back through nature. I find something extremely poignant in the image of an elderly bedridden car reconstructing in story form her long-vanished childhood, though perhaps that childhood never fully disappeared. There's evidence in Growing Pains, as in Carr's other books, that she promoted and preserved her child persona as another form of resistance to social stricture and convention. In these stories, Carr consistently depicts herself as younger than she actually was. She also has her elders address as her, she also has her elders address her as a child and a little girl when she was fully an adult. Hmm. In the chapter Caribou Gold, Carr's return to Canada after more than five years in England is met by a friend's dismayed exclamation. Millie! You are as immature and unsophisticated as when you left home. <laughs> Carr unashamedly concurs. Immaturity accords with innocence, simplicity, lack of affectation, all good things in her view. It also accords with brash Canadianness, with resisting old world influences. She appalls her family and community with her newly acquired habits of smoking and of riding a horse, cross-saddle, rather than side-saddle. Then proudly declares, Instead of England gentling me into an English miss with nice ways, I was more me than ever, just pure me. It's understood here that Carr cannot be an artist if she cannot be herself. <laughs> so true. And she cannot be herself if forced into conforming. Anglicized, unimaginative adulthood. Hmm. Nor in her place and time can she be an artist if she is married. This condition is made explicit in Martin, a retelling of her relationship with William Mayo Patton, the suitor who traveled to England from Canada to try to persuade Emily to marry him. She refused. I don't love that way, she tells him. Besides, my work, she doesn't mean besides at all. Her work is absolutely the point. In Martin, Carr declares out loud that it is her art that most signifies in her life. Although she will encounter many more patronizing teachers and colleagues, male artists who deprecate her talent because she is a woman. Her excuse me, her rejection of Padden's proposal is the climax of the battle that begins with baptizing minister and authoritarian father. Turning away from the possibility of marriage, she finally and definitively took herself off the patriarchal map. Yet in the book's latter chapters, we are shown the ringing importance of her mature relationships with certain men, 
creative and knowledgeable and younger men, especially Lauren Harris and Ira Dilworth, her editor and literary executor, who also wrote the original foreword to Growing Pains. This is not exactly capitulation. Following the course of Carr's journey of learning, we understand how much art informs art, how like minds nurture like, how the impulse to make paintings or write stories does not alone create the means by which to realize them. In finally discovering the way to express the themes that have preoccupied her since her youth, there is reconciliation with family and community, reconciliation with a man-shaped world because it exists within a vast, swirling, ungendered cosmos. As in her late ecstatic light-filled paintings. There is at the end of Emily Carr's life story a joyous sense of transcendence in the new growth springing up in a deforested patch of land, in the migration of wild geese overhead. She finds an acceptance of impending death. I evoke these images when I image the more sorry, I evoke these images when I imagine the mortality the mortally ill Emily Carr walking across the street that she last lived on to call the ambulance to take her away to the place of her passing. It comforts me to read her words here and to know how peacefully and unregretfully she undertook her final journey. So that's the end of the introduction the making of an artist. And I think that's where I'm going to end this first session since it's already 29 minutes. And now for the foreword by Ira Dilworth. Dear Emily, you have asked me to write a foreword to your autobiography, this summing up of a number of things that have mattered in your life. It is a hard task, but one for which I thank you. What can I say? Certainly nothing that can possibly matter much. I know how courageous your life has been, how dauntless your purpose, how unshaken and unshakable your faith, that this is not all that we go on. I know, too, how intensely you have felt the influence of nature, its loveliness, its deep solemnity, its mystic, overwhelming power to strike awe and sometimes terror in our hearts. You have told us of your reactions to those forces in your painting and your writing. Canadians will remember as they open this book and will be grateful. You will understand when I say that I should like a poem to stand as preface to your book, a poem which we have both admired so much. Thomas Hardy's Afterwards. I know, and you know, that Hardy did not think it a sad poem. Just a comment. And a, st- and a summing up. 
So, Emily, I should... I shirk my task and set as forward to your autobiography these lines. When the present has latched its postern behind my tremulous stay, and the May month flaps its glad green leaves like wings, delicate filmed as new-spun silk, will the neighbors say he was a man who used to notice such things? If it be in the dusk when, like an eyelid's soundless blink, the dew-fall hawk comes crossing the shades to alight upon the wind-warped upland thorn, a gazer may think, to him this must have been a familiar sight. If I pass during some nocturnal blackness, mothy and warm, when the hedgehog travels furtively over the lawn, one may say, he strove that such innocent creatures should come to no harm, but could do little for them, and now he is gone. If when hearing that I have been stilled at last, they stand at the door watching the full starred heavens that winter sees, will this thought rise on those who will meet my face no more? He was the one who had an eye for such mysteries? And will any say when my bell of quittance is heard on in the gloom and a crossing breeze cuts a pause in its outrollings till they rise again as they were a new bell's broom, boom, excuse me. He hears it now, he hears it not now, but used to notice such things. There is a change somewhere in the east. In my western garden this evening, grosbeaks are paying their annual visit, a brief pause in our elm trees during their migration. And high in the Canadian sky, wild geese, great flocks of them, are shouting their mysterious cry. They are all going on as you and I must, Emily. Life will not stand still. So, fare forward, dear soul.